the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Brad Cheney. I'm a church planter in South Scottsdale and your last minute uh, preacher, pinch hit preacher. Gray got sick yesterday and so I found out last evening that he needed somebody to fill the pulpit. So go easy on me because this sermon is, uh, is not fully baked, but I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk about the cross. It looked like the passage he was going to preach on is about the cross. What a connection does is it takes two things you didn't realize were related and says, oh yeah, 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 they are. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name of uh, the African-American theologian. He died a few years ago, James Cohn. Uh, Cohn was the first person who made this connection for me. He said that uh, the cross was like the lynching tree that the KKK used in the South. Both were public hangings. Both were ways to terrorize a populace. Jesus' mutilated body was put on display to show what happens when you step out of line against the powers that be. Uh, Just like the KKK hung black bodies attached to trees. Just like both were horrific murders. And um, I think the argument can be made that both were racially motivated murders. And it's a connection that I'd honestly, I'd I'd never thought of before. Have you? See, that's what connections do. They, they take things that you had never seen before and they link them. And normally the best connections come from people who were looking at things from a different vantage point than your own. You know, they have a different cultural story, a different point of view. Uh, what we're going to do now is read a passage that makes a connection between the events of Good Friday and Psalm 2, which Ann just read, that I don't think anybody other than a Jewish person could have possibly made this connection before. Uh, it's it's rather striking. And I, I think that once you see a great connection, you can't unsee it. And since we're in Lent and we're preparing for Good Friday, my, my hope is that this sermon will help you see the events of Good Friday connected in a different light. And that difference will, it will, it, it'll give you like a greater confidence in God's ability to overrule evil, horrific evil. So the passage, if you have your Bibles in front of you, Acts 4, verses 5 through 12, 22 through 30. I know that's a little disjointed, but we read um, uh, John and Peter, they heal a paralyzed man as they're going into the temple. They're arrested for that. They're brought before the court, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. Uh, There's a trial. We read in verse 5 that the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And these included Annas, the high priest who was there, also Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. They would say, by what power or what name did you do this, do this healing? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a man who was lame and, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is and then he uh, quotes Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Then they're released. Verse 23, we skip ahead. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I love to listen to early you know, early church prayers, and this is one of them. They raised their voices in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, uh, the, the sea and everything in them. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, quoting Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then they interpret it in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen, which is a, like a very uh, sovereignty kind of statement, isn't it? They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, verses 24 through 31, they quote Psalm 2, and they interpret the kings of the earth and the rulers who gather together against the Lord against his anointed to be none other than Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the, the Romans, the, the Roman soldiers, and, and the people of Israel. Is that how you have connected Psalm 2 before? Uh, certainly not for me. Isn't it interesting? We'll, we always will like start reading through the Bible, reading through the Psalms. And where do we start? We always start in Psalm 1. So we get familiar with Psalm 1 about the tree, the man who's planted by streams of water. And then we get to Psalm 2, and we're pretty familiar with it. But I I can tell you I've never read the Psalms before and read this particular one in, in that way. Because Psalm 2, we think it was originally composed as a coronation psalm. The, the original context, we could at least imagine it, it, you know, a grand royal parade with all the pomp and circumstances. The new king of Israel is going to be enthroned in the city of Zion on God's holy hill. And yeah, you just can imagine all the pageantry that would go into a royal coronation Finally, the moment comes when they are to place the crown upon King David's head, and we, we get maybe a, a priest who reads verse 7. He reads it out loud. Behold, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And the, the crown goes over his head. And what's being said? Well, God's appointed king is enthroned as a son of God in the city of Jerusalem. And then I mean, what? Trumpets sound, and cheers go up from the crowd, and, and everybody's rejoicing because we have a new king, only that not everyone is rejoicing, according to the psalm. 
It also describes how the hostile nations surrounding Israel are absolutely furious at the appointment of this new king. So here's what they do, it says. They, they convene a top-secret meeting of all their leaders, and they conspire how they might you know, overthrow the king who has been installed as the son of God in Zion. Whew, that was a lot, wasn't it? That's what we think is at least a possible reconstruction of the original context of the psalm. Who would have ever guessed that Peter and John would take it in the direction that they did? That Psalm 2 is about Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trials before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and the Supreme Court, his being beaten by the Roman centurions, his appearing before Herod and Pontius Pilate, that, that all of that is the nations raging and the people's plotting against God and against his king. I mean, we're, what, 40 days to, or less than 40 days to Good Friday, and I know you guys will have a Good Friday service, and you'll, you'll do the readings, and you'll come upon this figure, this uh, famous figure, Pontius Pilate, and I mean, he's, he's always saying things in the readings like, well, I don't think Jesus did anything to deserve to be crucified, right? I find no fault in him. Um, it, it just seems like Pilate was some weak and vacillating man who ultimately gives in to the pressure of the crowd. Herod, kind of similar. Like, did he really want to crucify Jesus? No, he just wanted to see Jesus do a few magic tricks for him. So what is it? It, Is Pilate and and Herod, are they just weak men who are given into the impulse of the moment Or are they Psalm 2 conspirators who rage against God's Son? And the answer, uh, of course, is both, right? So often, the uh, either-or questions of life are actually both and. Like, we're we're just, our our motivations are exceptionally complex, aren't they? (laughs) Like, we can be one thing, Dr. Jekyll, and, and we can at the same time be Mr. Hyde. They were both. Both are going on. And I hope you'll maybe have that in mind on Good Friday this year. Let me talk. I want to do a quick little sociological analysis of Good Friday. I want to talk for a moment about the so-called scapegoating mechanism. I don't know if you've heard of a French historian and philosopher, René Girard. Girard is way above my pay grade. Super brilliant, polymath. He's... He's a French Christian, and he's done probably more than anybody else in the scholarly work on scapegoating, where he he basically observes that during social crises, societies direct all their energies toward a villain, a bad guy, a scapegoat, that the scapegoat in moments of social crisis serves as like a pressure release valve on the system. Quote, the various tensions that exist between members of a society can be released through a communal act of shared anger and violence against an agreed-upon victim, so that when everyone unites and turns against the scapegoat, the social harmony is actually restored. Another way to put it is that in moments of, of great societal tension, basically you have a lightning rod in the middle of the society and, and all of the charge that's in the air between diff- different factions, it can all coalesce and unite and just go boom and strike the rod, which is the, is the victim. 
What Gerard found out is it doesn't matter if the scapegoat is guilty or innocent. All that matters is that the majority agreed that the scapegoat is the problem, <laughs> that the scapegoat is like the, the social contagion, the virus that has to be removed for us to enjoy our peace. As I said, Gerard's a Christian, and so what does he answer is behind this sociological phenomenon? He would say that is, of course, the Satan, the devil, that this is actually the satanic pagan way of organizing communities throughout human history, and that this scapegoating mechanism that we see is, is very hard for anybody to resist. He calls, it, he calls it a social avalanche, which you know catches people up in the tumble in the rush as it's headed down the mountain, and it just feels it feels so right. I tell you, when I when I read stuff like that, I think it has tremendous explanatory power to describe maybe further what's going on with. St. Pontius Pilate on Good Friday. I mean, Pilate, it does seem like he's convinced of the fact that Jesus was innocent, and yet he can't resist the, the social avalanche. He's caught up in the avalanche, and yet he's willingly in the path of the avalanche, too. You think, too, about um, how the scapegoat has the power to unite factions that would never be united, like Republican and Democrat. I mean, that's nothing compared to Roman and Jew. Like, aren't those the strangest bedfellows that you could possibly have? Like, Romans and Jews all, all uniting together for one purpose, and that is to kill the one they believe is disrupting the social peace and harmony of the city. Jesus Christ is dressed in a purple robe, and he's given a crown of thorns. And this twisted parody of royalty, after being abused by the Roman soldiers and ridiculed as the king of Jews, Jesus is presented to the crowd, and they say, Behold the man. Behold your king. And he really was the man. <laughs> he really was the king. And just as everyone thinks that this is the victim who will bring us peace, he really does bring us peace, but in a way they never, ever imagined. When they cry out, crucify, crucify on Good Friday, Jesus, the innocent scapegoat, takes upon himself the violence of humanity, and he conquers that violence. How? Through self-giving love. You remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan is being you know, assassinated, killed on the stone table by the white witch who's brought winter. It's always winter and it's never Christmas. And when he dies, what starts to happen? Lewis says that there was, there was a deeper magic involved. And the wind starts passing along the uh, the, the, the countryside of Narnia and the clouds start to move back and the sun starts to come out. And what's, what happens to the snow and to the winter? It begins to dissolve. And see, that's what was going on on Good Friday. You know, Satan, when he thought he was murdering the Son of God, what he also didn't realize is that he was murdering sin. That, that the scapegoat was actually the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that God was somehow mysteriously unknown to Satan, unknown to them all, concentrating all of the sin of humanity upon this one 
innocent victim so that God would forever do away with the power and penalty of sin. Amen? And Satan didn't see that. Satan is, is blind as a bat to it. There's a, there, uh, before I do that, um, you basically see two kingdoms, two diametrically opposed ways of operating on Good Friday. You see satanic unity through violence, and you see Trinitarian unity through self-giving love. And who could have, who could have ever imagined that that's what was going on? Now, to bring it back to Psalm 2, I want to do a quick mental exercise. I want you to imagine that somehow we were able to smuggle a microphone into heaven right this minute. And so there's a you know, ambient mic that's going to pick up all of the sounds of heaven up there. You know, uh, it'll be in the throne room. Like, what do you think that the throne room of God sounds like at this very minute? I know that tough to ask those kinds of questions in a sermon because you're like, I don't know. But I mean, if you stop to think about it for very long, yeah, we probably think of like angel choirs singing. You know? uh, the saints are singing, they're rejoicing, there's praise, there's glory, there's, there's goodness. Like that's, that's what's going on most likely. But if that same microphone was in heaven on Good Friday, what sound do you think it would have picked up? Again, it's hard to say, but I just, I just imagine that I think it would, I imagine it would be silence as the angels look on and see the Son of God as, as he's being beaten, you know, all throughout the arrest, the trials, all, even the nails into his hands. It's just the angels are there looking on in stunned disbelief. And that's exactly the wrong answer. According to Psalm 2, what does Psalm 2 say? You hear on Good Friday, you hear the voice of God laughing, laughing in scorn, laughing in derision, laughing at his enemies, laughing at the nations and the rulers who, who plot their evil against the sun. God laughs because because Satan is blind, because he's blind as, as a fool, because everything they did, according to Acts 4.28, everything they did is what your power and your will decided beforehand should happen. That in murdering God's son, they murdered Satan's plans. They destroyed themselves. You know, one of the connections I can't help get out of my mind on Good Friday is remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Gospels tell us that those who passed by hurled their insults at him. They shook their heads and they said, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. They laughed at him in mockery. It was in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. All they who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. They laugh at Jesus on the cross. Satan laughs. The demons were laughing at Jesus on the cross. And it was God who had the last laugh. It was God who laughed the loudest. In the face of the most horrific evil in, in all of human history, we have a God who laughs. 
Let me try to land the plane and talk just a moment about human suffering. You know, the first noble truth in Buddhism is life is suffering. And we know that existentially, personally, how terrible things can happen to us that make no sense. Rape, abuse, illness, terrible things that scar us for life that make no sense. If the cross is the center of our religion, if God could take the brutal murder of his son and overrule it for good, then then surely there's got to be some hope in our suffering. If God is a God who laughs, now I, I want there to be a God who cries over my suffering. I want there to be a God who has tears and who can empathize, who has sympathy for my suffering. But I can tell you what I want even more than that is a God who is so in complete control that he can take the absolute worst and he can laugh at it in mockery because he knows the plan so much better than the rest. You know, for whatever reason God chose to make mankind subject to sorrow and death, at least he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with with this creation, he's kept his own rules and played it fair. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors and pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born into poverty and murdered in disgrace, says Dorothy Sayers. And he laughs in the face of evil. Brothers and sisters, friends, never, ever, ever think that God is not working no matter how horrible the situation may be. Never forget that we have a God who scorns the evil here on earth. Let me conclude verses 7 and 10. <clears throat> Peter and John are called before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And you remember Peter, just a, like a few weeks before, was confronted by the, the lowest member of the social hierarchy, a slave girl, and asked to testify, right? You know, speak up for Jesus. And he, he just fumbles it. You know, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And Peter says, I don't know the man. And here we have a reversal of that. When they say to him, by what power and what name did you perform this healing? Like he could have said, he could have played the get out of jail card for free. He could have said, brothers and fathers, um, there is no salvation except in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the only way that a man or woman can be saved is by the name of Yahweh. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says in verse 10, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no other, in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He's like so bold in the face of fear. Why? Because Jesus was murdered on Good Friday, and it was Satan who suffered the mortal wound. Because, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away your sins, the world's scapegoat, who conquers violence through self-giving love. Isn't it interesting that in Hebrews, in chapter 12, is it, where he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What's the next word? Scorning its shame, laughing, Laughing at the cross is how we are supposed to see our Savior. And I hope that's a connection 
that you never, ever forget. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, we pray.